The purpose of our two previous encounters is now very clear to me. I do not intend to be distracted by another. Good night, Mr. Bond. Do you expect me to talk? No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. Welcome to the Man Cave Movie Review, the podcast that reviews the good, the bad, and the ugly of movies for men. This is episode 139, and today we're going to be talking about Goldfinger. This great and fantastic film stars the legendary Sean Connery, Gert Frobe, and Honor Blackman. I am your host, Steve Michaels, and joining me is my very good and dear friend, Mark. Shaken, but not stirred. Slover. Gentlemen, I'm going to describe in epic detail my cunning plan for taking over the gold reserve of this country. And I'm going to monologue at length about it to both of you. And then at the end, because it's, I, I can't resist, I'm going to kill you both for no apparent reason. <laughs> Mark, that's brilliant, because that was one of the things that, I don't know how many times I watched this one, it's like, why did he do that? And then kill everybody. <laughs> that's, well, well, that is why in Austin Powers, they had that whole right. scene of, Seth Green going like, wait, Dad, I'll just go upstairs and get my gun and shoot him. <laughs> right. All right, and also joining us is our other very good and dear friend, Ken. Get that laser away from my crotch, Roni. <laughs> yeah, Mark's making fun of certain scenes in this movie, but I think we would all agree that as guys, we all really want Goldfinger's pad, where he had that meeting with the switches and the sliding doors and the underground pit and a pool table that flips. Oh, I mean, I, I, I'd love to have that. You know, that'd be a great place to party. That'd be a great gaming table. It would be. Yes, yeah. it would. Yeah. So as soon, as soon as we start losing in a game, you just flip the table over and say, okay, new game. <laughs> That's right. That's called the man killer maneuver, right, Ken? Exactly. It is. The man killer maneuver was <laughs> <laughs> similar in a way. In a way. You had both the man killer maneuver and the startled pigeon maneuver. They both had the same effect. <laughs> yeah, on the Russian front. Okay, folks, our other very good and dear friend, Jeff, strange occupation, Muncie. <laughs> I, I was searching the thesaurus for something to come up with, and that's about as weak as I could get. Uh, he's uh, obviously, you know, it's the first show of 2015, and, of course, he can't be here, so... He sends his regrets and regards. Uh, hopefully we will see him at some point during 2015 for some more Man Cave movies. But anyway, folks, we are going to be talking about this is our third, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, I think this is the third Bond movie that we reviewed, which, guys, be honest with you, I have to say, uh, for the Man Cave movie, I feel remiss that we've only done three. Uh, I think the first two we did were the the two Daniel Craig ones. We did uh, Casino Royale was like very early one that we did, and I think we did Skyfall sometime about mid-year. But uh, this is the first of the Connery uh, movies that, uh, or I'm sorry, first of the Connery Bond movies. And I believe he did six Bond movies. And this is, I think, guys, this is the one that I've always looked at, is that if there was a Connery Bond movie, this is the one. This is the one I think that people always think about. Uh, well, this was probably the most successful in its day. Yeah. The other two were kind of low budget. They did okay, but this one did 
excellent. And it also set the template for all those movies that followed, especially the Roger Moore movies. I mean, if you look at the basic plot line, most of the other movies pretty much just ripped this plot line off. They changed the villains, they changed the girls, they changed the locations, but it's the same setup. Yeah, I mean, they, they kind of did. I think this is like the only Bond, or I'm sorry, the only Connery one where uh, Spectre wasn't involved. That I think that was kind of the one takeaway, and I think you're right, Ken, when you say that this was the one that really set those up because, you know, he was doing, I, I think he came back. I'm trying to remember, I have to go back and look at the, the, the sequence when they came out. I'm trying to remember. I think this might have been the third one. It was. It was yes. the third. Okay, it was the third one. I thought it was the third one. And, you know, it's one of my favorites. I think From Russia With Love is probably my other favorite Connery Bond movie. That one I really liked a lot. I think this is a classic. This is the, I, I think this is the Bond movie that really defines the, the Connery era of the Bond ones. So, again, my opinion, I could be wrong. I think when they talk in terms of Bond movies, there's only one James Bond, and his name is Sean Connery. And uh, you guys, you know here, you know where he's from, right? Here we go. Get it out of the way. Do it now. He's from what? Scotland, and it was all Scottish as crap. Now you so, feel better. Yeah, I do feel better. We haven't done that in a while, or I haven't done that in a while, so I had to get that. Well, out. he's looking lean and toned, and everything else in this movie. Yeah, well, dapper, very well, dapper. Yeah, yeah, yeah dapper. That was my wife. We were watching it today, and my wife's like, what are you guys reviewing? And I said, Thunder, uh, Thunderball, Goldfinger. And I had it on. My dad and I were watching it, and she's like, he was a handsome man. She just, it just kind of struck him. She goes, wow, he just had this look about him. I said, yeah, he really does. I said, he's, he's one of those guys that men and women just like. He has this aura about him. Well, and that's just it. He, there is, the man has a presence. There, there is a definite presence about the guy, and it was funny because, and I think it's a generational thing because, like Emily, my daughter, the small child, she'll look at him and she'll go, I don't think he's attractive. What? How do you not look at this guy and just not just swoon? And she's just like, like, look at him in this movie? Yeah, in this movie. I'm not talking now. I mean, the dude's like in his late 80s. Well, hold so. on. I got to point something out, which is. For a girl of your daughter's age, I well, mean, any man over like 26 is just either invisible or incredibly old and decrepit. Well, I, I appreciate that. And that's the thing. I mean, I understand that. But, and you're right. It, you know, asking her to look at this guy because, well, and it was funny because I mentioned, I said, well, when he made this movie, he was only like 34, 35 years old, I think. And it was funny because she's like, he's, he was only in his mid thirties. She goes, dad, you look younger than him. I'm like, I don't think so. (laughs) But I think, but I think that that was a thing at that time. When you looked at actors from that period, they did look a lot older than I think people from our generation are looking back now, see them as, and it's just, I think it was just that era, the way they looked, the way they dressed, uh, you know, when you see a guy dressed up in a three-piece suit like him, it's just like, well, oh, Christ, these guys be in his 40s. Uh, <laughs> you know, that's one of the things I love about this this period, this genre of Bond, and they got back to it with Daniel Craig, is there's this impeccability about them. Right. I mean, I'm watching this and going, he's wearing like a, at one point, he when he's going to visit um, M, he's wearing a gray vest with a black suit coat and a tie. And I'm like, look at that going, I want that. Yeah. That look is just, it, it, 
the great thing about this movie, when you look at what the guys are wearing, it never goes out of style. Now, the girls, you know, white go-go boots and... Uh, <laughs> But bikinis are always in style. I don't know. Yeah. I, I, you know what? I always, I will always go for white go-go boots. I just, you know, but yeah. he, I think that's part of what Sean Connery's, what, what really worked with Sean Connery from a physical presence, and Daniel Craig, I think, of all the Bonds, has done this really well, is he inhabits that presence and the way he looks in all his sartorial splendor. If I yeah. may use a big word in 2015. But he just carries that off, and there's something about the way he walks and talks that, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm of the opinion there's only one Bond, and that's Sean Connery. Right. That doesn't mean I haven't enjoyed the other Bond movies, but there's something about this guy. Now, I'll, I'll, I may step on you, Steve. I'll say it now. You know what you get with Sean Connery. Right. But that's what you want in a James Bond movie. Well, guys, uh, I want to really get into this conversation, but uh, before we get too deep into this uh, very intellectual Bond discussion, I thought I would throw out the, uh, the Man Cave movie intro to this great and fantastic film. James Bond is called upon to stop a madman obsessed with gold from blowing up Fort Knox with an atomic bomb. My name is Pussy Galore. Emphasis on the galore. Bloody hell. Well, there you go. I got no comment on that. It was hey, can I throw a, a comment on sort of the music here? And just something that hit me when I was watching this. By all means, please. One, that this song, the title song, which you've heard a little bit of, this, in my opinion, one of the better Bond songs. There's been a lot of, you know, I mean, this this movie set the precedent of when we have a Bond movie, we get a you know, pop singer to try to make a hit song and get it on the radio. Right. But, you know, I, I I've said this many times in our podcasting. I'm a little older than you guys. I was around when this movie came out. I mean, I was cognizant that song when I was a little kid for like this whatever the period of time this movie came out. It was on the radio. All the time. All the stations were playing it. It was a big hit. Uh, so the music was cool. But another thing about this, going back to what uh, you guys were talking about a minute ago, in terms of the attire and everything, this movie came out in 64, which meant it was basically filmed mostly in 63. And even though that's technically the 60s, in terms of what we think of today as the 60s, it really wasn't. It was... It was that period where we weren't quite out of the 50s, like I think Mark said. I mean, the guys are wearing suits. A thing I noticed in the opening scene where they have, you know, the sort of the, the circle and Bond walks on, you know, when you hear the dun 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 you know, the theme song, the silhouette of Bond is wearing a hat. Yeah. Yeah. He's wearing a fedora. And a couple of others throughout the movie. Yeah, that whole scene of, like, you know, Felix Leiter in his suit and fedora hiding in the bushes, you know, pacing the joint. <laughs> but that's the way it was. That's the way people dressed back then. You can make light of it, but that's the way people were. And a few right. years later, we were in the 60s of, you know, hippie and counterculture and everything else that people think of as the 60s. 
But that wasn't here yet. Right. But that was the thing, Mark. Or, I'm sorry, Mark. Uh, Ken, that that hippie counterculture, you really didn't start seeing that until maybe 66, late 60s, um, you know, early part of the 70s. Is That's really where that came in. What you were seeing here was still, like you said, it was still like a carryover from the 50s. This is all at Fort Knox, you know, big military base, big army base. Well, keep in mind, 64, I mean, there was something going on in Vietnam, but there was no Vietnam War with quotes around it like we in America tend to think of it. Right. Uh, right. You know, we had, in 1964, America was basically at peace. We were just sort of sitting around. Well, it was just the beginning of the Johnson administration. You know, he had stepped in for Kennedy just 18 months before. Yeah, and that's, a, you know, that's 50 years ago. That's a long time. But on the other hand, it's a long time, and then it's not. Right. Well, Ken, one thing I wanted to jump on that you mentioned is, uh, you know, a little bit of the music that I, I played in the in the beginning. And, again, I, I try not to I'm, – I'm trying not to uh, violate any copyright laws, but I'm just trying to give people, like, a sense of – uh, these movies when I do these intros just so they can kind of hear some of this music. The singer for this was Shirley Bassey. She's a Welsh lady and uh, from Great Britain, and she has a fantastic voice. And for those of you who have never heard the entire rendition of Goldfinger, I, I cannot recommend going to hear it enough. I mean, it, it's just a fantastic rendition. And the thing of it is, is that when I think of a Bond opening song, and, and there's, uh, like Ken said, there was something about these Bond movies where it was like, you know, who was going to, you know, do a great song, something that was going to hit on top. This is the one, when I think of a Bond song, this is the one. This is like the ubiquitous James Bond opening scene song. It's fantastic. It's powerful. I, it, literally, it's very, very hard to even think of another Bond opening song sequence that even is a close second to this i I really feel that way i mean this is just great in in uh shirley bassey did three uh bond songs she did uh, goldfinger she did diamonds are forever which was connery's last bond movie and uh i actually am ashamed to say or i feel embarrassed for her she actually did the uh uh the opening title for moonraker if i can jump in on the music two things real quick um, and I, it is a great piece. Uh, I will say that uh, my favorite Bond song, and I would hold it up against this, is the one Paul McCartney did, um, "Live and Let Live Die." Live and Let Die. I, yes. I really like "Live and Let Die." I mean, well, I think it, that's the first uh, Roger Moore Bond, isn't it? I uh, yes, I think it is. Yeah, and it still kept the spirit of the Sean Connery Bond. And the other thing is, here's a bit of trivia I found, is that Barry, when, when um, John Barry wrote this piece, the first person that heard it to hear the original Goldfinger theme was Michael Caine. He was staying with John Barry at the time. Oh, wow. He had just gotten done with Zulu, so he was hanging out with John Barry. Oh, that's cool. Really wow. erroneous, but, you know, here's, here's Michael Caine. He probably heard it and went, oh, that's damn good, mate. Yeah. Because there's just there's something about the horns and her voice with the horns. Yes. She's got this big, profound voice that goes over those those blasting horns, and it's just 
you, you're just like, hello, I know. You immediately know the first three notes. You know this. You know the movie. Well, that's what I mean. It's when you hear that opening sequence of, boom, it's Goldfinger. I mean, yep. of all the Bond opening sequences, this is probably the most recognizable one ever. And it, I, and, and, and I think it defined kind of that Bond genre of these movies. I mean, it's like everybody, I think at that point was like, okay, we got to do something better. Well, you ain't going to beat this. This is, this is James Bond. This is the music and, and it's, um, it's going to be really tough to beat. Um, and it's just a fantastic uh, opening sequence. You know, they all tried. I mean, I think there was a few others that I, I think did a decent job. Mark, like you said, I think Live and Let Die, uh, the McCartney one, wasn't bad. I think the problem with that one was is, well, I shouldn't say it was a problem. I mean, it really hit mainstream because that became almost, I think it was like on the top 40 for a while. Oh, it was top 10. The top 10? Okay, yeah. So, uh, but yeah, it's, uh, you know, but this one here, it, and part of it is, is it, it's that, it's that era. Kind of like what Ken was talking about with the clothing. There was a look and feel of that particular period of time, which, I mean, it's a few years before I was born, but I can still kind of remember, you know, like the look and, and, and just the music and everything like that. And there's something about the Sean Connery Bond movies. And, and I guess we could probably talk about that. I mean, you know, this, you know, this movie I think is probably the best Connery one. Uh, I would say, uh, oh God, what was the one that where he goes to Japan? Um, oh, um, you only live twice. You only live twice. That's my other favorite. I'm a, I'm a fan of Thunderball. And Thunderball, yeah, Thunderball is a good one too. And, and again, all those involve the whole Spectre with a Blofeld and all that stuff. And I think they're good, and I really do enjoy them. In hindsight, you look back at the at the Connery ones and are like, ah, eh, you know, they're a little cheesy. It's a little far fetched, like you said, Mark. It's, you know, we're gonna. You know, we're, we're, uh, what's his name? Uh, Goldfinger does his whole spiel to the, to the guys in the room and then leaves and then kills them all. It's like, what was that for? Why? Just kill him. Why'd you have to go because through the whole Because he's a megalomaniacal villain. That's what they do. Yeah. And I think it was just like he just wanted to hear himself talk. Maybe that was the excuse, but, um, maybe. Yeah. That, that could work. be it. But, you know, you, you kind of look past that stuff because you look at these movies for what they were at the time. They were more of an adventure-style movie, if you will. They are not uh, – they, they clearly are not the Bond movies you're seeing today with Daniel Craig. I mean, they've pretty much rebooted that franchise and are now doing something completely different with it in terms of just how Bond's portrayed and just terms of the plots. There's no more of the – I mean, you don't have any more of the double entendres. Of, you know, the whole, well, the, you know, the classic uh, line that Honor Blackman played. In this. <laughs> I mean, yeah, God. that really started with this movie. Yes. It, it seemed like this movie hit its stride for, and I think Ken mentioned this earlier, for the... for it's the a template. For the tropes, what would become tropes, shall we say. Yeah, the template of what would be Bond movies until, I, I would say, I would agree with you, Steve, until we get back to where they tried to pull it back to classic Bond um, with the Daniel Craig Bonds. And they've still got a few of those things. They really stripped it down. They got rid of the gadgets. They got rid of a lot of that stuff. 
Right. There was no more gadgets than that. But, you know, even if you go back to the very first Bond movie, which was uh, Dr. No, at least the first Connery Bond movie, uh, you know, Ursula Andrus, I mean, her name was Honey Ryder. Right. So, so, I mean, right. you know, they were already playing the double entendre thing right off the bat with that stuff. So, yes, like, what are the odds some Swedish mother in 19, you know, 48 is going to name their daughter Honey Ryder? <laughs> gotcha. Sure. Oh, my gosh. Well, I'd like to make just a couple little side comments, but think another couple things that stuck to, you know, popped out of me when I was watching this. Uh, bit of like social or economic commentary there's a couple scenes where felix Leiter and his partner are like you know they're, they're staking the thing out to trying to figure out what bond is up to because they're his backup cia backup yeah. and they're hanging out at kentucky fried chicken yeah <laughs> yeah and today i think most people watching this today are like oh, what the hell but in the early 60s Fast food franchises were the thing. It was a new thing. I mean, it was just breaking through. There wasn't, you know, a Taco Bell at every corner like there was today. So the fact they were doing the, the Kentucky Fried Chicken, to me, was, like, pretty cool. They had that one scene where the guy's coming out, he's, like, wiping his fingers off. You can tell he just, like, finished a drumstick or something. Remember, it was finger-licking good. It was. And this is where I get to put in my little plug that – of everyone listening, I personally was in the presence of Colonel Sanders. <laughs> I was like three feet away from the dude back in the sixties. Wow! I, I I'm I'm just saying that because how many and, other guys have done and that? The Center on Aging at the University of Kentucky is named after him, but I digress. Well, there's that. Back to your point about fast food, and I know we're getting off a little bit on the bond, but I remember. What people may not forget, and I, I don't know about you, Steve, but I know Ken can Ken can appreciate this. I remember going to McDonald's, and you couldn't – there was no sitting down at McDonald's. No, you walked up to a window. Up. You got it, and it was a big deal on a Friday night. Dad would say, we're going to McDonald's. Oh, Yes, cool. and you would drive a while to get there. Yeah, you. I remember Springfield, Illinois. We would drive to the McDonald's or a Sandy's, which was – the Wendy's variant, because there were all of these people vying. That's what people may not realize is there were all these different fast food joints popping up that were cottage industries that were vying for for supremacy. And that was kind of what I was watching because there was a Sunoco sign at one point when Odd Job is going to do an Odd Job. Right. Um, there, there's just watching this movie to get it back on track. Watching this movie for the background when they're in Kentucky is a hoot. Right. Especially the cars. That's the other thing I love was the cars. And you're right. I mean, that's the thing that I liked about this because we're seeing, you know, for those of us our age, and Ken, I know he's a little bit older, but, again, pretty much the same generation. These are things that we remember as kids growing up, you know, and stuff that we that you'll never see again. I mean, yep. I still remember, you know, the Kentucky Fried Chicken outlets looking like they did in that one. They didn't look yeah. like they do now, I mean, but they looked like that then, and I still remember that. So it it's kind of a hoot to watch it, and I think that's one of the reasons that when I watch a lot of the uh, Sean Connery movies, I do like them because it's I can relate to, you know, the scene. It's not it, it's still timeless to me because it's like, yeah, I still remember that. It's not like for me watching something from the 40s, it's black and white, and it's like, I can't relate to any of this stuff. I, I didn't grow up with it, but with this stuff I did. 
So it's kind of cool to watch that. So anyway, um, guys, real I, I, I got to throw in one other piece of cool Americana that uses spark my mind, which is Tilly Masterson, uh, not not uh, Jill Masterson, but Tilly Masterson, when she's chasing down Bond on these Swiss roads. Yes. She's driving a, a 64 Mustang. Yes. I mean, that was excellent product placement because that thing, had, the Mustang had just come out. I doubt that it was even really, that was probably had to be one of the first Mustang appearances ever in a movie. I think it was. It might have been. Yeah, good and, cat. Well, a yeah. 64 Mustang is a cool car to this day. Yep. Well, guys, I want to, I mean, we we all know who Sean Connery is in that, but I want to talk about at least one in particular because I have, uh, ever since I first saw this movie, I, to this day, will will say that the Bond girl in this movie, Shirley Eaton, that was the uh, the one that um, that he met up in the uh, hotel that was uh, scamming for for Goldfinger. Oh yeah, the one uh, who gets spray painted. Yep. I, Jill Masterson as her character. Jill name. Masterson, yep. yes. I will say, without reservation and hesitation, probably the sexiest Bond girl, period, bar none, full stop, I rest my case. Really? Yes. There is something about her that it it I get overclimped. I, I don't know. She's <laughs> There's something about her, and I think it's a, a combination of just like, her looks, her her voice, just the way she carries herself, and you don't see her that long. But I'll tell you what that that woman, she's, she's got a presence. She had a presence, and boy, did that lady make a lasting impression on me. Literally, up from the time I saw this movie when I was a kid. And well, I, it's sad that Jeff isn't here because you know what he would say. You know, I he is dead to me because I know what he would say. <laughs> And I'm, I'm serious. If he would say she was moderately attractive, uh, there, you would hear my headphones hitting the thing, and I would be driving to his house with my sword and and chainsaw and lime shovel. And, it, yeah, that's I, – I don't know. it. You know, that was always a big thing about the Bond movies, you know, the women. Oh, my God, the women, the women. There was something about her. The women took a beating in this movie. Oh, yeah, they did. The Masterson girls – you know, it was tough in the first third of the movie to be a Bond girl. Yeah. And Otter Blackman, is, I mean, she's another one that was just exuded this unbelievable sexiness that yeah. you just don't see in some of the later Bond movies. I mean, yeah, there's, I mean, I'm not saying that the women aren't attractive. I mean, don't get me wrong, but they're, it, it's hard to put in the words. There there's was a physical pet. attractiveness, and then there's that, again, presence, charisma. Yeah. Yep. She, uh, has a, she has an aura. Yeah. Aura. And again, Honor Blackman had it. Oh, yeah. Honor, I mean, she had been big on the Avengers TV series, which yep. went strong. I mean, her replacement was Diana Riggs, but she actually did the initial female lead for that. But, yeah. And she's still cranking out movies or TV. She's still – she was born in 1925. Yeah. She, she was – yeah, she's still alive. She did something in – a TV series in England in 2013. So she's still showing up. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, and uh, Shirley Eaton's still alive. She was uh, she was born in 1937. I think she's 77 years old right now. And, um, you know, I, I don't think she's doing anything. But um, well, she pretty much did this, and then she got married and had kids and just 
Yeah. More often, but she was a mom. Yeah. And, you know, and like I said, there is, she just, I don't know. There was something about her in this movie that just literally just had, had me. <clears throat> I've got a towelette here. Yeah. Um, I just want to say that Honor Blackman, just real quick, is, uh, according to the, uh, the trivia, was the oldest Bond girl ever. Yeah, she was pushing 40 when she did this role. She was 39 years old. She yeah. was she was older than Sean Connery. Really? Yes. But of course, I'm at that age where I'm going like 39 years old. Well, I'm a cradle robber. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, but, but you know, the thing of it is, and we've talked about this, uh, or I don't know if we have, but I know around the family and that we have. But when you look at people in that era, they looked older than they really were. I mean, when you look at people from the 30s, the 40s, and even in, in early mid 60s, people did look a lot older than they were. And I, mean, I can still remember going into my high school when I was young and looking at the pictures of the like the class of 64, and you know they looked like they were 40 years old then, just yep. because of the way they dressed and the hair and everything else. Yep. Well, and like I said, to me, Shirley Eaton, in her role, I mean, I would have thought maybe early 30s. Hell, she was 25 years old. I'm like, oh, really? Okay. I mean, she just looked, and I'm not saying old, I would say mature. Maybe that's the right word. Yes. And, and there was like a look that people had at that period of time that they just looked older than they did. I think now, you know, you, you'd look at her, because that's the same thing, because I remember you know, telling Deb, I said, you know, how old do you think Honor Blackman was there? She goes, I don't know, early 30s. I said, she was 39. She was almost 40 years old. And you wouldn't have thought, but, well, I, I would have thought that too, because they did. But I always kind of look at them saying, yeah, they're probably not as old as I think they are. But um, well, that's the thing they've done with Bond girls over the years. I mean, I'm not going to get all nostalgic about them all, but because again, it's a, it's a, it's a stereotype. I mean, Bond girl, the, the, the phrase Bond girl doesn't exist without a reason. Right. But they tend to cast women who don't look very young. They might be young, but they are mature looking for whatever the age is. Right. Mark, you had made a comment a little bit earlier about one of the best Bond villains. So let's talk about him. Gert Frobe. Yes. As Arik Goldfinger, I you know he just comes across as a psychopath. I mean, this guy's crazy, and he's he's nailed down crazy. He's not chewing the scenery crazy. This guy, he's passionate about what he loves, which is gold. He's single-minded in his craziness, and I like the twist because he's laying out. You think you think that we're going down the road of we're actually going to rob Fort Knox? Really? Right. Okay. And then we get this, we get this curveball that even Connery's character, James Bond, goes, "Well, that's inspired." <laughs> yeah, didn't see that coming. Yeah, and it's it's really well done. And I got to give Gert Frobe credit. The, you know, the the other movie people will recognize Gert Frobe from, if they're a Man Cave movie review fan, is The Longest Day. Yep, he was the Feldwebel who delivered milk to the to the bunkers and when the barrage begins he goes scampering off with his horse. So that's Gert Fro. 
But he, he was also a, a movie I liked. Same period was is Paris Burning. Yes, he was the uh, General von Koltitz, the uh, German commander of Paris in that yes. movie, which I thought was a it was an interesting play how they showed him because he's a guy who's he's basically had it with the Fuhrer. I'll just put it that way. Yeah, I, you know, and the thing is, I guess I will say it right now. One of the weaknesses of this movie, and it's a minor one, is the the problem you get with all these movies is why does the why does the antisocial, sadistic, narcissistic, crazy guy allow the guy who is going to be his downfall inside his realm, of, inside his you know, um, oh, what is uh, what is it called the Inside the plot, inside the conspiracy. Thank you. Um, you know, but I, you know, you go okay because he's crazy and he believes he he can't he can't fail because that's how these guys are supposed to be in these movies. But Gert Frobe sells it. Gert Frobe is you you believe Ari Goldfinger really wants Bond around because he's enjoying being that this is his cat's paw. He's found something to play with. So you well, get over that trope pretty quickly because Auric Goldfinger, a la Gerfrobe, sells that he's enjoying having Connery's character Bond as a cat's paw, and he's always one step ahead of him in this. In this, that's the other thing about this movie. Goldfinger's one step ahead of everybody till the very end in this movie. Right. Well, that's a that's a thing that I didn't really get. I've seen this movie several times, but I didn't get it until this watching. The concept that, you know, he could have just killed Bond, but he realized, you know, and actually Bond gave it away. Like, if you kill me, I'll, they'll just send some other people. And he realized, I can just, this guy's under my control. I, you know, I, I, he can't do anything. I will use him to throw the other intelligence folks off track. They'll think he's on top of it when really he's, you know, my prisoner. And, he did a good job of it, and it worked. Yes. Well, but you know the thing—the whole—the whole concept of when you say it's a shortcoming in this movie, the whole concept that they always never kill Bond—that is what they ended up pulling into the parodies and the, the Austin Powers thing. You know, the whole thing right. where Scott goes, "I got a gun upstairs. Let me just take <laughs> him and shoot him." And then you've got you know, and then you know, of course, you, you just don't get it, do you, Scott? <laughs> I mean. And that's why my wife, she she really doesn't like the Bond movies. Because she's just like, they always do these elaborate things. We're going to kill them. This way. She'll just shoot them. <laughs> right. But if you've got a tank full of sharks with freaking laser beams <laughs> on their heads, you want to use them. I know. Well, yeah, there's that. You just don't get those things everywhere. Sea bass? Yeah, sea bass. Great. They even call that back in one of my favorite um, uh, cartoon movies, The Incredibles, is when Mr. Incredible and one of his buddies, Mr. Freeze or whatever, they're talking. He goes, and he started monologuing. Yeah. You know, cause that's a classic thing you always see in these movies. He starts monologuing. He's going to lay out his whole plan to give the, the hero time to figure out a way out of this mess. And that really starts to develop, and that's not a knock on this movie. This, this just becomes. This is the basis from which that outgrowth really begins. 
Right. You begin to see it with Goldfinger before before that it really did not occur. You saw some of it in Doctor No and From Russia with Love, but those were pretty straightforward. Right. Well, speaking of those, a thing that this movie had, which From Russia with Love had too, which was cool for the era, is at one level his enemies are a bunch of commies. <laughs> he's fighting the communists. This is a Cold War movie. He's fighting the commies. It's not. It's not Spectre. It's not some megalomaniac. You know, it, it's a megalomaniacal madman. But later on, it got to where that was his constant opponent. But here, yep. it was still grounded in the real world, where you know. Who was helping Goldfinger? Who was indispensable? Well, that's those red Chinese. I mean, those were guys that were behind it. And you know how they are. So in its day, that was brought a, a sense of real life to the movie. Right. But nowadays, you wouldn't make it that way because that's a huge market. No. So you make it the North Koreans or right. some side. Right. You can't even make it the North Koreans now, and you know it. Well, I we could go off on that tangent, but we won't. That, that you could talk about because the red Chinese, because we had dealt with them during Korean War. So they're this mystery. Well, but the thing was that got me about the whole plot when he said, you know, well, you're going to detonate that thing and, you know, the whole gold supply would be radioactive for, you know, 58 years. No, it'd be uh, vaporized, wouldn't it? You're setting yeah. off a bomb, an atomic bomb. It's going to go away. He, Mark pointed out, like, when. When Bond figures out, when, well, he doesn't figure it out. When, when Goldfinger says, this is what I'm doing, Bond had to go like, damn, that's, 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 a, that's a great idea. But see, that's the thing. You don't think about the fact that uh, we might retaliate and we just assume that the Russians did it and start. But you can't really get into all that because these movies aren't meant to be, you know, all these Bond movies are not not meant to be those where you think about, if this happens, this and this and this. I mean, you, it's... You and know. in 1964, it's enough that it touches on this kind of stuff and you have these Chinese fellows trotting around in their little blue outfits with their yellow sashes. It's, you know, again, that's the beauty of Bond. It's exotic. And if you put yourself in when the movie came out, you, you have an exotic enemy. You have, you have Auric Goldfinger who is exotic as a bad guy. You have exotic locales. That was the other thing that struck me was, especially in Switzerland. Right. You know, the shot... I thought you were about to say, especially in Kentucky. Yeah, no. <laughs> Most of it was shot actually in a back lot in England. The bluegrass is beautiful, but yeah, it's not Switzerland. But it it's all of that that really played into, you know, we take it for granted that people have traveled the world. Short of visiting Europe or the Pacific courtesy of the United States Army or Marine Corps or Army Air Corps or Navy, you, you know, travel to Europe and these exotic locales and these exotic individuals was, was something unheard of for most people. Right. And they, I think they really do a good job. And that's always been a fixture of the Bond movies is where can we go? Who can we present as, for lack of a better term, exotic? Right, and that is, and Mark, I'm glad you brought that up, because that is something that was always enjoyable about the Bond movies. Where mm -hmm. are we going to be? I mean, it's, I mean, they could be anywhere from, you know, like you said, the, 
you know, the Caribbean to Turkey to, um, you know, the, the, the Middle East to wherever. I mean, it was always somewhere different that they were going. And because it was never just located like in England or in America, it was always in these really cool exotic spots, which yep. I thought was really cool about all the Bond movies and not just you the know, Connery ones. I mean, all the ones, even the ones that Roger yeah. Moore did. It's, it's yeah. the template. Again, I'll keep using that word. This movie set the fact that audiences want to get outside their little comfort zone and see something that they haven't seen before, go somewhere they haven't been before. Right. Well, and I'll and give Bond movies delivered it. And I'll give the Bond folks credit. They were really sharp on this, the producer and director. They set some of this in the United States because they realized they had a big crossover audience with their first two movies. So let's put part of it in the United States and really grab them. Right. Right. And that was that, you know, again, these guys, had, they they began to realize they had a franchise, you know. That's the thing we we forget with Bond, and I give the Bond folks credit, is it is a franchise, but they have managed with a few times where they've almost spun out and hit the wall, a la Star Trek. They've managed to save it and keep it fresh enough and interestingly and interesting enough, and I think a lot of the credit goes to. 007 is just a number. Anybody right. can be 007. That keeps the series fresh. Right. Well, and it's kind of like you said, Mark. I mean, there was a point when I thought this franchise was really going to spin out of control. And it was the, uh, I mean, it was a later half of the Roger Moore years. And then when they got <laughs> Timothy Dalton, it was like, oh, Jesus, good Lord. You know, what are you doing? And then, um, I mean, to be honest with you, I thought Pierce Brosnan Sal. Uh, just saved it. Yeah. I mean, I the Brosnan Bonds were, in my mind, it's debatable whether who's the better Bond, him or Connor. Well, I'll tell you what. My thing would be is that if you were going to go strictly by the by the Ian Fleming books in the description, Brosnan did a better job. Brosnan fit the the character much, much better, I think. I think the I think what happened with them and we're getting off on a real tangent here, but I think what really hurt Brosnan was not his portrayal because I think his portrayal was I think next to Connery's like spot on. He suffered from some like it, it was almost reverting back to the old Roger Moore style plots, just ridiculousness. They couldn't. Uh, well, and. Uh... Yes, but they couldn't make up their mind. Right. Because right. there were moments when they wanted to go back to Connery. Yes, yes, you're and, right. And then all of a sudden they'd be like, oh, screw that. Let's, let's go all gadgety and, and, and smirky. Right. It's like, yeah, I mean, in my mind, the best Brosnan bond is Goldeneye, but that's just me. Is that the one with 006? Yeah, that's the yeah. one with Sean Bean's on it. With Sean Bean. Because yeah. I, and that's, okay, I love that one. I think that's a great Bond movie. Uh, I'm trying to remember. I think the other one that was really good too was the, um, oh Christ, I can't remember the name of it now, but it was, uh, it was the one where he got captured by the North Koreans. It was in a North Korean prison for a while. Oh yeah. That oh, was, yeah. that's a good Bond one too. That's I think a good that was his last one. Yeah. That was good. Yeah. But you know, again, not, I don't want to get off on sidetracks there, but th I mean, that was the thing. There's like Mark said, that franchise Probably was really close to dying out, and oh, that, 
die another day. Die another day, yes. And and I think part of the problem was is that Roger Moore, I mean, the early Roger Moore ones weren't too bad, but then you started getting into the point where it's like, you know, this dude is old. He's too old to be. I mean, well, and they, they were spending all their time just winking at the audience. And... Yeah. Yeah, it became the only thing I, I kept expecting. We were just going to get Burt Reynolds at 007. Well, he yeah. was actually looking at, they were actually looking at him at one point. But you know what I mean? You know, yeah. so we can have Smokey and the Bandit does 007. Yeah. We can look in the, we can that look. That actually would have been kind of cool. Well, but the thing was, is the the bad part was, is that the later part of the, the, the Roger Moore ones, they were borderline Austin Powers type parodies. I mean, oh, you yeah. just you you weren't really sure if you should start taking this seriously or not. Yeah, that you, Octopussy and Moonraker. Oh yeah. Jesus Christ! I mean, those are those are just horrible. I mean, I be honest with you, if I was Roger Moore, I'd be like, you know what? I I've got too much self respect. I am that that was a Michael Caine move. I'm oh. picking up a paycheck. Oh my I, God! But I it to be. Well, yeah. speaking of this being a franchise, something that this movie had, which followed in all those the, the franchise. Was uh, Louise Maxwell as Money Penny? Yes, we have to talk about her. And uh, oh shoot, who was it to play Q and M? Uh, Q was uh, Des, Des, Desmond Des- Llewellyn. Yeah. Yes. I mean, he was. I mean, he just finally stopped being Q in what the last one? I think. No, he's been gone for. I think Q was in, if I'm not mistaken, Q actually had a little bit of an appearance in either the last one or the one before. No. Q's, Q's been gone, I think, since brought, uh, well, he's not been in the Dan and Craig ones. I, I'm going to find out. All right. To the internet. But, uh, we did have a, uh, Darwin wanted to know what we thought of, uh, Miss Moneypenny in this particular episode. You first. I- I always liked Miss Moneypenny. I just thought she was adorable. I mean, you know, she, you know, she had this, uh, you know, schoolgirl crush on um, Bond, and and she was still, you know, she was still really young in this one because uh, she was uh, actually she was older than him too. She had him. Uh, she had about three years on him. So uh, she's born 1927. So this movie came out in uh, what 1963? I was it. Was that it? Uh, yeah. Four. 64. 64? So that made her 37 years old. So, I don't know. I think, I thought she looked, this is probably the best she looked. She's the girl you, you take home to mom that you're going to marry. Yes. Yes. And she played that role really well. Well, and it was just always the, you know, that was something that you look forward to in those movies that in the early part of the show, when those two got together, the, the banter back and forth. Yep. Was was just always fun. It was always fun and always refreshing. And I think part of it is, if I go out on a limb on this, is she was the intellectual. She could hold her own easily and was not swayed. She enjoyed Bond's charms. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But she wouldn't. Yeah. You're right. She could hold her own, and it was going to be on her terms, not on his. Right. No, you're right. I know exactly what you're saying. And speaking of right, I'm wrong. Yeah, Desmond Llewellyn hasn't been in a Bond movie since 2002 and Die Another Day. Q's still a character. John Cleese paid him for a, played him for a couple movies. Right. But he hasn't, you know, there's a new Q in the new series, but he's a younger guy. Yeah, he's a metrosexual. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he looked I like didn't he... didn't want to go into that. Yeah, but... he looked like Pajama Boy, definitely. 
Q. Well, actually, anything else you want to say about Q or M or Money Penny? Well, no. M was in a lot of these movies too. Yeah, Bernard Lee played M. Yep. I'm glad my boss isn't like M. Here's the thing I like about M. M knew that he was writing herd on a bunch of of people who had given been given license to kill by Her Majesty's government, and he knew that at any moment these people could go off the reservation. So he had to be. He knew what he had. Right. I really enjoyed Judy Dench as M. I thought she really portrayed that role really well too in the new in the Daniel Craig movie. Yes. Yeah, I liked her. Well, finally, we we got to talk about Odd Job. Oh yeah, he's one of the classic Bond. I mean, he's up there with Jaws. Well, yeah, the other Bond villains. <laughs> Harold Sakata. Harold. Yeah, he was in a ton of stuff. He passed away in 1982. He was always working, and you know he had no lines. He said, "Ah," I think yeah. once. At the end, ah! Yeah, and then he screamed a lot when he got, well, spoiler. Well, he and got it, his point apart by grimacing and ass-whooping. And pointing. <laughs> he did a lot of pointing, yes. And his, his first movie was Goldfinger. Yes. Well, I noticed in my research that you know, he's he was an Olympic athlete. Was he really? Yeah, he's yeah, a silver medal weightlifter. Wow. He, you know, I don't know, I, I don't know about this guy, but he just has this look about him that you think probably offset. He's a really likable guy. That's what everybody says. I mean, but, you know, he's supposed to be just very charming, very pleasant to be around. But you know, at least in the movie, you don't want to get on odd jobs. You don't want to become. You don't want to be noticed by odd job. You want to just odd job just to like pay no attention to you. Well, and that's one of the best fight scenes at the end of a Bond movie because you always have to have a climax fight scene. Is odd job's like giving Sean Connery every chance to? Okay, are you done yet? Okay, you want to try that now? Okay, go ahead. You want to try? Oh, you want to see if you can hurt my arm? Okay. Well, I'm not going to punch your lights out just yet because I want to. I want to let you have as much opportunity to to see if you can physically harm me as possible. You right. Know, He's always got that. Gold, throw a gold bar on me. Yeah. yeah. Okay. He's got like that little shit-eating grin on his face every time Bob's <laughs> trying to do something to him. He's just like, yeah, whatever. Is that the best you got? Give me all you got. <laughs> we, we, we have to have a, a short discussion of the bowler hat. What, do you, what are your thoughts? Well, Mythbusters did the bowler hat. Of course they did. And it's busted. There's no way. But it's cool. Well, you know what? Yeah, I don't want to have Mythbusters doing anything on the Bond movies because none of it works then. <laughs> oh, and that's what they said, but they all agreed. It doesn't matter. It should work because it's so awesome. I love the bowler hat. Yeah. I mean, it looks good. I mean, I, it's a great little gimmick in the Bond movies. And like we talked about, it's the Bond movies, you don't take them seriously. You can't think beyond uh, what's going on in front of you because if you do, it doesn't work. But because they're adventure movies, you're not supposed to look at this as, you know, serious spy movies or whatever. It's they're adventure movies, and that's what they're supposed to be. You're just supposed to enjoy them from what they are. Well, here, here's a question for you: If there was a battle to the death between Odd Job and his Hat of Death, and the Feral Boy from from the, the Road Warrior 
and his killer uh, boomerang, who would win? Oh, odd job. He could chop his fingers off and he'd just smile and suck on them. Wow. All right, folks. It is now time for Brother, What You Drinking? Mark, what do you got there? And tell me it's not NyQuil. No, it's not NyQuil. It's something better. And since the theme of the movie is we take a trip to the bluegrass, I pulled out some of the bluegrass. I'm, If you have noticed by my voice, I'm suffering from one of those winter uh, chest colds. So I'm down a few octaves. So I'm treating it with some Noah's Mill bourbon out of Bardstown. I think this one. Yep, Bardstown, Nelson County, Kentucky. It's a very nice small batch bourbon. Um, little, little more corn than wheat. Um, very flavorful. Uh, not, not, not a subtle whiskey, not a subtle bourbon. And I don't mean that in a negative. It, it, it's a little more robust and in a good way. So I'm, I'm nursing my cold with some fine Noah's mill in honor of, of this movie taking place in the bluegrass because frankly I can't stand mint juleps. They're awful. <laughs> nice. Like it. Uh let's see. Well since uh, uh our other good and dear friend uh Strange Occupation is not here to join us, I will <laughs> um I will kick this one off with uh uh saw this one at uh, the favorite liquor store. Uh the one with uh two, two number, the two numbers and an amendment. Mm. Seventeenth Amendment. Yep, that one. And they had a. Uh, it's our good and dear friends from the the Sun King Brewery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they've got a uh, they've got a new beer out, and I was intrigued when I saw uh, the. Let's see, what is this? I'm trying to focus here. Okay, this is the Sun King Cowbell Milk Porter. Mm-hmm. Does it sound like a blue oyster called callback? I'm kind of thinking that. Well, there's a cowbell on I got the front. A fever yeah. Cowbell. <laughs> Go look it up on YouTube if you're going. What the hell are they talking about? Yep. Need more cowbell. So it is a it's a milk porter. Uh, let's see. I don't know. This is it's fairly new. I have not seen this. As a matter of fact, I was just over there uh, prior to. Uh, the New Year's, I didn't see it. Well, then again, I wasn't looking either, but that's a, another story. I'll tell you what, guys. I'm. It, it's good. It's good. I, I do like it. Um, but? Well, I it, it, there, there's no there there. It's just, it's. I mean, it's a good beer. I mean, I would definitely get it again. It just, I was, I was waiting to get my, uh, you know, something to blow my skirt up, and it's just not blowing my skirt up. I mean, I've had porters, and this one's, I mean, it's a good porter. Don't get me wrong. Uh, it's flavor? Is it, it just kind of ends flat? Is it watery? Uh, yeah, a little bit all the above. Okay. I mean, I, I wouldn't say, and, and like I said, don't get me wrong, because I don't think I've ever given Sun King a bad review. It, it's a good beer, and I think part of the issue is I hold these guys in the highest regard in terms of the beers that they put up. And... I think every time I see something new, you know, I go in there and I, I walk in there with these expectations that I just don't think can be met. It, it's very good, and I will go back and buy more. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's not one of those where I'm like, oh, gosh, this is not that good. It's it's kind of a strange review because I like the beer. I just thought it was going to be better. 
but it is very good. And as porters go, because as I've said before on the show, those are not easy to come by. And this one's actually pretty good. Uh, and they come in four pack cans. They're about ten bucks a four pack. So you know they're they're a little pricey, you know, but uh, definitely worth it. Definitely worth it. I I did enjoy it. And so, uh, if it had been a different brewer, you would have been pleased with it. But you came in with higher expectations based upon your past experience. Right. And and it's and like I said, it's a weird review because I it's not that I don't like it. It just was oh okay, this is good. I just, you know, was expecting something better because every time Sun King puts something out, it's like, you know, literally. I mean, you see, you know, you hear the angels singing and, you know, Gregorian (laughs) chant occurs and it's great stuff. So, um, and again, folks, I am not on their payroll. Would it be fair to say that there's porters are just hard to do? I think they are. I don't, I I think it's a hard, I think it's a hard beer to make. Yeah. Um, uh, And I don't. A lot of people do them. Yeah. Well, it's hard to find. I mean, you don't. I mean, how many times you go to a liquor store and find a porter? I mean, you know, we will all rave. Best porter, Samuel Smith, Tadcaster. Yep. Yep. There you go. Yeah. That's it's an, and porters are a very distinct English beer. Yes. You don't see too many American brewers. They tend to go to stouts. Right. So anyway, that's what I'm drinking, and I don't know what the ABV is, but it's a porter, so it can't be that much. So there's probably going to be no Godzilla on this one. So I'm just gonna I'm just going on the assumption that it. Uh... My step in, it's five point six. Well, there you go. Oh, that's right. You have connections over there, right? I do. Probably made a phone call in the middle of the show. I have a wide network of <laughs> contacts. I could say something, but I'll. Oh, gosh. All right, folks, that's it with what I'm drinking. It's now time for Catching Up with Ken. All right, Ken, talk to us. I'll, since you said to do it fast, I will do it fast. Uh, we've been off for a couple weeks for the holidays. Uh, the Friday before, before Christmas, I went down with... A co-worker and his wife and a couple of guys and went to the Brass Ring. You've heard me talk about it before. A nice bar. It's not a strip club, Jeff. <laughs> it's a nice bar. Uh, uh, a thing I, I liked there was I got all wrapped up finally with these the friends I was with. And so, like, I got to leave. And I looked over, and there was Susan, a, a former co-worker of mine. So I went over and hung out with uh, them and had a good time. I met with her and her, her husband, and, you know, hadn't met him before. Uh, had Christmas celebrations, you know, went to my sisters, went to my aunts, you know, all good. Uh, I'm not going to go into detail. Uh, with that is, you know, typical good time family uh, celebrations. I'm thinking, what was it? Was it Saturday? I went to uh, up to Castleton, did some shopping, returned some merchandise, had a good time, went to see Unbroken. The new movie that came out, a good man cave movie. I oh, recommend today. it. I give it the thumbs up. I saw it today. I would What'd you think? It it is a very straightforward. It, it's kind of a throwback movie, and and that's it, a good thing. Uh, that's it's, very it's good. a guy's ordeal. Would that be fair to say? Uh, yes, and uh, we took my fourteen year old daughter and soon to be thirteen year old son, and they they were they enjoyed it. They had, I mean, enjoyed is a qualitative term, 
but they had a lot of questions and they I thought it was very very well done um, I've not read the book but I, I found the movie very solid I would have given it probably in a micro review uh, an eight about the same here not a feel good movie not well, Japanese prisoner of war camp hey. I know that's what I'm saying Ooh, fun times no I, well and the thing is Unlike a lot of movies that have come out, they didn't say like, "Well, we we need to examine the uh, the psychological viewpoint of the Japanese prison guards." They right. didn't really do that. It's just like they're, they're brutal. They're 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 vindictive, sadistic, and they're going to just make these people's lives miserable. Right. But no, not to go sidetracked on that. Good movie. If you want to go see it, go ahead. Maybe we'll do that as a review sometime. Yeah. Uh, after that movie. Late, because it's a two-and-a-half-hour movie, and I didn't know that going in, I went over and met Mark at the Fox and Hound, yeah, a nice local watering spot that he had picked out because our original venue was packed, from what I understand. Uh, Mark, you give a quick review of the Fox and Hound. Uh, great local beer. They had a Captain Morgan special for you on Friday night. They must have known you were coming, so you were yes. a happy camper. And great pub food. Yes. We yes, have the nuts and the pretzels, and it's just, you know, it, it, it's a chain. But if you need a great place just to hang out and have some pub food, and the only downside I would degrade them on is we had to listen to top 40 shite music in the background. But, um, you know, other than that, the food, the service, and the beer was outstanding. And you yeah. have Morgan. I agree. But, yeah, I had more exposure to Taylor Swift videos than I'd ever had my whole life. Oh, shit. But, you know, I'm a very open-minded, broad-minded guy. Uh, anyways, the next night I went to a friend's party down on the south side, a couple I know through a party. Good mix of people, excellent food, as they always do. Uh, Amy and Ryan, I'll put on a plug for them. Uh, Dwayne and Katrina, a couple we knew uh, from my old days in law school, were back in town. Uh, I love like Dwayne, I love Katrina because Katrina is one of the few people in this world that actually sat down with me and asked me for my opinion on what they should do for a career. And I gave her my advice, and she took it, which nobody ever takes my advice. So happy to, happy to have caught up with those guys. Did she become a bail bondsman? No, she became an accountant. <laughs> so I just thought that, was, that speaks well of her in my opinion. Again, nobody ever asked me what to do. I, I like telling people what to do. After, well, one thing i got to point out is before I went to the movie, before I met Mark, I stopped by Sun King. And at Sun King, since they have the free tasting, I had the Cowbell Porter. Oh, nice. Which was yeah. very good. Uh, aside from that, I also had a couple of the their house traditional brands like the, uh, the Wee Mac mm -hmm. and the uh, Cream Ale, the Sunlight Cream Ale. Uh, and I saved a few of the token so I could go back the next time and really load up on free beer, but I had to get moving on. Monday, I'm losing track of time for the holidays. Went to see The Hobbit, and I'll just say it's consistent with the rest of the series. I had an okay time, but Peter Jackson has been excessive. That's the word I want to use. The whole Hobbit series is an excessive display of a lot of Things that could better be left out of a movie. So in other words, you want George Lucas on us. 
Not yeah. quite George Lucas, but he's excessive. Just because you can throw in an extra 30, 40 minutes of people wandering around and talking no. so that you can get a third movie out of a franchise, it doesn't mean you shouldn't have just had two movies. Right. But, but that's just me. Uh, New Year's Eve, I went to my friend Ann uh, Kixmiller's New Year's party. Great party. She had... I always thought I put on a good spread of booze when people come to my parties, but man, she had me beat by like double and had a steady stream of jello shots and specialty cocktails and everything coming. A uh, good mix of people, lots of fun food, had a good time at Halloween, uh, Halloween, New Year's. I did get home at a decent hour. I, I didn't get arrested coming home. And then finally tonight, I went to Union 50. Uh, met a, uh, Chris, a friend of mine, we've been talking about going there for a while, so we went there, we're having drinks, and before Chris got there, I looked over, and who was walking in? But Susan, the friend of mine I bumped into at Brass Ring a couple weeks ago, and so she and her girlfriend sat by us, and we just had a jolly time, and I had the pulled pork, upscale, cool, trendy version of a pulled pork sandwich, and rum and Diet Cokes. And when I got home tonight, I had another rum and Diet Coke. And I'm done. Nice. There you go. Very well done. All right. Well, there you go, folks. That is it with Brother What You're Drinking and Catching Up with Ken. So it is now time to move on to our favorite part of the show, and that is clips. Clips. Let's see. What do we got here? I've got a few. All right. Number one. Laurie Goldfinger. Sounds like a French nail varnish. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, the thing that always got me about Sean Connery is, even though he's from Scotland, and if it's on Scottish, it's crap, his accent is not as broguish, if if you will. You know what I mean? Right. You can hear a little bit, but it's not that, uh, <clears throat> it's not that, uh, yeah, the brogue. Well, and the other thing about that is that's such a throwaway line, but it's a great one. It kind of sets up his whole attitude towards Goldfinger. Right, exactly. All right. I thought he sounded sort of like a Moroccan sheik. <laughs> Here we go. All right, uh, guys, uh, go dig deep into the archives for that reference. All right, number two. Why do you do it? He pays me. Is that all he pays you for? And for being seen with him. Just seen? Just seen. I'm so glad. <laughs> He's such a... And so his expressions are priceless in this movie. That was the voice of Shirley Eaton. Be still my heart. My God. You know, I would pay a little bit to be seen around town with Shirley Eaton as she was in this movie. I would, too. I would. In that bikini? Oh, my God. <clears throat> All right. Anyway, uh, let's see. Number three. My dear girl, there are some things that just aren't done, such as drinking Dom Perignon 53. Above a temperature of 38 degrees Fahrenheit. That's as bad as listening to the Beatles without earmuffs. Or the Man Cave movie review. Or, the case or, or that, yes. <laughs> hearing, my, well, hearing my voice over the, uh, the internet. What? Also, i got to point out, if that's, if that's, you know, this is 1964 and he's referring to the Beatles. This is the original, you know, mop-top British invasion wearing a black suit and tie Beatles. Yep. Right, right. Yep. 
Uh, let's see. All right, here, I like this one, guys. I pulled this quote because I I just thought it was really cool because it, it was that initial banter between uh, Bond and Moneypenny. Well, nothing would give me greater pleasure, but unfortunately I do have a business appointment. That's the flimsiest excuse you've ever given me. Oh, well, some girls have all the luck. Who is she, James? She is me, Miss Moneypenny. And kindly omit the customary biplay with 007. He's dining with me. I don't want him to be late. (laughs) (laughs) I just love... That was perfect. That was so classic what they did with that. (laughs) Moneypenny left the inner camera. (laughs) Again. Yep. All right. I like this one. That's not as bad as when a co-worker left her... uh, mic on while she went to the bathroom after giving a presentation to about 400 people at the, the main office. Oh, there's that. Yeah. This is the idea where you, or, or this is the scene where you kind of start realizing that Bond is a very sophisticated type of man. Have a little more on this uh, rather disappointing, Brandy. Well, what's the matter with it? I'd say it was a 30-year-old fiend indifferently blended, sir. With an overdose of bonbois. Colonel Smithers is giving the lecture to him, <laughs> Wow. Yeah. I, I had to look well, up half those words. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> a thing that got me about this, which I think it's sort of an adult thing, and I don't know, maybe I'm overanalyzing it, but they go to meet a banker. You know, we, we need to talk to a man from the Bank of England. That's Colonel Smithers. I was like, I don't. When I go to the bank, I don't usually think I'm going to bump into a colonel telling me what to do. But you know, evidently at the Bank of England, they do things different. Well, you know, that's the same Colonel Smithers who murdered the suspect with a candelabra in Clue. In the library. In the library. Oh, yeah. All right. Uh, here, uh, this is number six. This is where I really like the whole banter between Q and Bond. On the dashboard here. Auto visual range 150 miles. Genius, useful too. Allow a man to stop off for a quick one en route. It has not been perfected out of years of patient research entirely for that purpose, 007. <laughs> you know, a double entendre on a quick one, that can be taken a couple different ways. I think it was only meant for one way because there's. <laughs> Yeah, probably so. I don't think he was talking about going to the popo. No, or getting a quick drink. Getting a pint. No. A thing that I was always envious of was one of my cousins had the toy Aston Martin when I was a kid. The big one? The larger one? The larger one. Yeah. And also, I was jazzed when I went to see Skyfall and I actually had the homage to the Aston Martin. Oh, yeah, it, absolutely. It played an important role in that movie. Yeah. Yes, it did. <laughs> yeah. All right, uh, let's see. Next one, this is probably the ubiquitous, if I haven't used that word enough, wow. quote of all the Bond movies. The purpose of our two previous encounters is now very clear to me. I do not intend to be distracted by another. Good night, Mr. Bond. Do you expect me to talk? No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. Ah, pretty He's much. so happy. Yes. Yeah, that's probably one of the most classic Bond lines ever. I shouldn't say Bond. I mean, it's from the Bond movies. 
And Mark, you're right. I mean, the more I sit there and watch this movie, the re- more I realize Gerfrobe was like probably like the best villain they ever had. <laughs> he was outstanding. Yeah. Now, a, a a sidebar on a minor villainess who I really loved in this movie. <laughs> she shows up for all of a minute. Is the German housefrau oh. Jake Card with the <laughs> <laughs> Yes! Yes! When she comes out with with the MP forty and she's just yep. she could she can barely hold it steady and she's just like blazing away. <laughs> yeah, she's old but she's spry. Yeah. Like me. Oh. Cuts it loose. She stops Bond. I mean She does. Yeah. She well, that's the thing about this movie is, unlike some of the later Bond movies, where you know the only people that can like stymie Bond for a moment are like you know super competitors. There's some actually pretty mundane characters who get the drop on them. Yeah. Right. All right, guys. Last one here. Another classic. Who are you? My name is Pussy Galore. I must be dreaming. Supposedly, according to some of the trivia I read, he was supposed to say, well, of course, but what's your real name? And I guess evidently that was supposed to be too suggestive. You think? Yeah, that's what they said. Yeah. That's what they said. All right, folks, that is it with clips. We are now moving on to the Man Cave Movie Review Checklist of this great and fantastic film. Number one. Did anyone jump out of a window? Actually, I have to stop and think about this. Well, did anyone? Yeah, well, Goldfinger sort of went through the window. Oh, oh, of course. He's right. Ken got it. Goldfinger went through the plane window. He didn't technically jump. Well, he didn't jump. It's, well, again, we're going to have to get this through legal because um, it's somebody went through a window. But he definitely, yeah, he definitely passed through the window. Yep, he definitely. I yeah. totally forgot. I'm like, how the hell did I miss that? Yes, he definitely went through the window. All right, well done, Ken. All right, number two. If you want him, come and claim him. Was there a Liv Tyler role in the movie? You know, I'm hard-pressed to say, is there even, in a Bond movie, Is no. there, there There can't be a relevant, I mean, they're, they're supposed to be in there. Like yeah. I said earlier, the whole phrase, I Bond girl, has a certain role to play in a Bond movie, even if it's just sort of a walk-on, walk-off role. Right. I, I, I will, and I'm not disagreeing, but I will say the... Here we go. I know where no, it's going. No, no, no. Oh. I, I will just say that the one that is closest to what we would call this position in our honorarium of list would be um, Tilly Masterson. Whether or not she was in the movie really was not going to matter much. No. If she's there and then she dies. If you cut her scenes out, the movie wouldn't have suffered a bit. Not at all. You know what? That's a good point, Mark. I thought you were going to mention somebody else, but that's all right. Um, I I think, and it's not that I have anything against the actress. You know, and I love that whole scene where she's got a sniper rifle, she misses Ari Goldfinger. And the only person who hears it is the guy who almost gets hit by it, James Bond. Right. Although we have a high-powered rifle and we're in a mountain valley, but sound evidently doesn't carry. 
for a gunshot that would have echoed for miles. But I digress. And it was a I, flipping 22, for Christ's sake. Yeah, there's that, too. Yeah. I, I think that that character, is, I would say I could make the case, and I'm not going to defend it hard, could be considered an irrelevant female lead role. Because it didn't, if you plugged it out, it really wouldn't, you wouldn't have noticed. You know what? It is a Bond movie. But you know what? I I think I might second Mark's motion on that one. She really didn't need to be in there. It it was rather forced. It was like they were trying to figure out what to do with her. I I almost think that they threw her in there because I think she auditioned for another Bond movie and didn't get it. She did. She did. And I think it was, I think it was almost a throwaway. Let's, let's fit her in here because. You know, Bond never made it with her or anything like that. And it was like she was there and then she died. It's like, all right, well, you're out. But, uh, yeah. yeah. It, so it, I, I, I see where you're coming from, Mark. I, I actually agree with you on that one. Okay. All right. Next one. <laughs> was there a, <laughs> never, never gets old. old. Was there a Wilhelm scream in this movie? You know, there had to have been one. I think there's a Wilhelm scream in every freaking Bob movie. I think it's almost like a, a requirement, but I couldn't tell you where it was. Well, there were so many people getting whacked at the end. Yeah. <laughs> you know, somebody falling over a rail had to have, we're, we're just going to, you know, let's flip a coin. 50-50 chance. It probably would have happened. I think it would have been great if it was Goldfinger oh, going up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wasn't there a Wilhelm scream when the guy gets shot out of the roof of the car? Oh, Christ, I don't remember. All right, well, you know what? Probably, but we're not sure. Yeah, we'll assume there probably was, because this was the generation of Wilhelm Screams. So, all right, uh, let's see. Next one. Could one of the female roles be better played by Tawny Katane? Again, in her prime setting in that particular era. Yes. Which one? Tilly Masterson. Yeah, I'm good for that. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I can, I can roll with that. Yeah, I can roll with give, that. Give her a early '60s haircut, put her yeah. in a little May skirt with white go-go boots. Oh yeah, yeah, you're all there. I'm good with yep. that. Yeah. Oh gosh, very well done. Nice, I like it. Uh, let's see, what's my next one here? Number number four. Was there a montage in this movie? I don't think so, because Bond doesn't do montage. He doesn't really spend a lot of time preparing. He yeah. is a man of action. He just <laughs> does it. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I, I there's really no montage in this movie. No, there's not. No, not at all. All right, no montage. Uh, let's see. And last and certainly not least. And so it begins. Was there a B5 reference in this movie? I'm going to go out on a limb and just say probably not. I didn't go that deep, but I didn't find anyone. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a generation away. Yeah. It, it's it, 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 it. Yeah. What's a generation? Is that 30 years? 20 years. 20 years? That's a generation and a half away. Yeah. 30 years away. Yeah. Or 30 years, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Bupkis there. All right. So there you go, folks. So that is it with the Man Cave Movie Review Checklist. It is now time to move on to the top movies of 
1960. When was this movie? Four. 64. All right, folks, it is now time for the top 10 movies of 1964. Ken, take it away. I, I'm going to share with you guys. I think you guys will agree. 64 had some great top movies. Number one is Goldfinger. I didn't realize this was that successful of a movie, but it was. It oh, beat yeah. all oh. the other movies in the U.S. Wow. Wow. Number two, Mary Poppins. And although I could regale you guys with singing like every song for Mary Poppins, because no. we had this record when I was a kid, no. and we played it over and over and over and over and over, I won't. Thank you. Thanks. But nonetheless, Mary Poppins was a great movie. Uh, number three, My Fair Lady, a classic with Audrey Hepburn and Rex Harrison. Great musical. Number four, The Carpetbaggers, a George Pappard movie. Um, I like The Carpetbaggers. I like George Pappard. He's underrated, in my opinion. Here's what I got to point out, which is like very unique in the movie world in terms of of uh, when you have a franchise. Number five, From Russia With Love. Oh. Sean Connery and Robert Shaw face off with Lonnie Linya on the side. Normally, when you have a franchise, it's like every two or three years you put out, put out a movie, but they did, they released both these movies in the same year. But to give you an idea, when we're talking about how well, you know, where does this stand in the... Uh, the evolution of uh, James Bond movies. From Russia with Love made $24 million. Goldfinger made $124 million. Wow. It's like five times the box office. So this one, uh, Goldfinger really put the, the franchise in a super drive. Uh, number six, A Fistful of Dollars. Wow. Classic Clint Eastwood Spaghetti Western. Number seven, Father Goose with Cary Grant and Leslie Caron. A World War II Coast Watcher romance. Have either of you guys seen Father Goose? No. What? A long time ago. I mean, same here, but that, I mean, it's, it's a Cary Grant. He's a coast watcher in World War II, and somehow Leslie Caron shows up, and next thing you know, there's a comic romance. Number eight, A Shot in the Dark with Peter Sellers and Elkie Summers. Number nine, A Hard Day's Night with the Beatles. Yep. Great movie, actually. It is. And number 10, The Night of the Iguana, which Richard Burton, <laughs> Ava Gardner, and Deborah Kerr. And if I can just mention a few of the other movies from that year, which jumped out at me, again, as Man Cave guys. I mentioned it earlier, because this sparked a memory. Number 13 was The Pink Panther, with Peter Sellers, David Niven, Robert Wagner, and Cappuccino. Number 14, Viva Las Vegas with Elvis and Anne Margaret. Wow. Number 15, Dr. Strangelove. Number great. 16, Beckett with Richard good, Burton and Peter O'Toole. Beckett is a great movie. It is. 
And anyways, I was I was going to do the top 10, but there was these extra ones, so I just tacked them on there. But 64 was a good good year for movies. Yeah. Very nice. Thank you, Ken. All right, folks, that is it with uh, that is it with the top movies of 1964. It is now time for the Man Cave Movie Review of this great and fantastic film. All right, who wants this one? You, you love, you need to do, and it's the beginning of 2015, you, you need to take. Oh, gosh. Evidently, the torch has been passed to yours truly to give the review. And uh, for those of you who don't know, I am a huge Bond fan. I've, I've read most of the books, if not all of them, that I've found. And I, I just really do like all the Bond stuff. Uh, anything James Bond related, I'll watch it, read it check it out. I've seen all the Bond movies. There isn't a single one I haven't seen, even all the bad ones, including the ones with Timothy Dalton, which were all of them, all the bad ones. No, I'm just kidding. But this one here, I, I really liked it. It's, uh, I, I think this is the one movie, when I think of James Bond, I always think of Goldfinger. And I think, I think of it in terms of the music, like we talked about in the early part of the show, uh, Shirley Bassey's voice is just absolutely incredible. It just rivets you to the movie. It sets the stage. I think all of the actors in this have, are top-notch. You know, the story, I, I just don't get too much into the stories of a lot of the Bond movies because they are what they are. Uh, they embellish them for the, for, the, uh, for the screen. You can't think too much into them because they're adventure movies, uh, particularly the early Bond ones, especially all the Connery ones. You know, these were supposed to be far-fetched type of adventure-type movies, and I didn't think too much past, like, well, what if this, 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 and that. And you can't do that with these. You're supposed to just enjoy them have fun. All the actors, Gert Frobe, like Mark said, one of the greatest Bond villains, I think all of the women in this one were just fantastic. And I think we're probably, uh, I look back even based on even the modern, I should say the modern days. This is modern too, because it's 1960s. But, you know, even the women from the Bond movies early on. I, I'm sorry, Shirley Eaton, Honor Blackman, probably the most attractive and sexiest Bond girls you will ever see in a, in a movie, in a Bond movie to this day. Yeah, you may look back and go, what are you talking about? But no, they are. They're they're stunning. They're they have a presence about them that just is is just fantastic. So, uh, as Bond movies go, uh, it's pretty good. Uh, I I almost have to grade these based on uh, the different. Uh, uh, I have to grade these based on the different characters that have played Bond because the characters are different. The, the plots are different. Of the Sean Connery ones, oh, this one's tough because it's between this and. Uh, for Mushroom with Love for me. I would say this is uh, probably the... I would say For Mushroom with Love is a little bit better than this, but not by much. I will give this an 8 on the Bond scale. I would agree. It launches what becomes the franchise with what are now tropes or traditions, as it were, not to be negative. And, I, yeah, there are some things, like I referenced, referenced at the beginning of the movie, that we all... You, you have to accept in, in some willing disbelief when dealing with Bond and Bond villains versus Bond. But it it is in the pantheon of Bond movies, people would say this is probably, there are many people who would say this is the best movie. Um, I think we all have our personal favorites for a variety of reasons. 
Right. But I'm like you, Steve. I would I will give this an eight. It it really hits the Bond stride that you see going forward for the next uh, series of movies, even into the early Roger Moore couple, two or three, and the first Roger Moore's before the wheels start to start to come off. <laughs> right. I agree. All right, uh, Ken. Any closing thoughts or? I'll uh, give it an eight point two. I got to give it a little bit better than a straight eight. But I really like this movie. I can't say it's like the greatest movie ever made. I did like the fact that it, unlike the movies that came a little later, it was still they're still making a, an effort to ground it in reality, which these you know like the the world as it was in 1964, which they're coming back to with the more recent uh, Bond movies. But there was that long period, like in the 70s and early 80s, where they were just winking and mugging for the cameras. So that was good. Right. Speaking of franchises, I mean, we pointed out several times, they've set up the, you know, this this set the template for the later movies. But uh, a thing I noticed at the very end of this movie, did you guys catch on to the fact that although in the Bond universe, there is the man with the golden gun, that Goldfinger is a man with a golden gun. True at the end. Yeah. yeah, he's got a golden gun, and then later on there's another movie with a golden gun. I just thought that was interesting. Yep. I would say if we're going to do another Bond movie uh, from the Roger Moore era, that's the one we're going to do. That's a well-done movie. Yeah. All right. <clears throat> well, there you go, folks. That's the review. Uh, we got an 8 and an 8.2, so it's definitely the Bond movie to see. All right, guys, before we sign off, I just want to wish everybody uh, happy holidays. I hope you had a good Christmas. Hope you had a great New Year's. And uh, here we are here at the uh, the Man Cave movie crew going into year number three of this uh, little adventure we started uh, uh, way back in the day, kind of as a lark. And uh, we're glad a lot of you have uh, found us and are still listening and uh, look forward to uh, – bringing you more good shows to review. That is it with the Man Cave Movie Review. Hope you enjoyed the show. Again, hope everybody had a great holiday and a happy new year, and we look forward to bringing you some more uh, great Man Cave Movie Reviews in 2015. Uh, So that's it for episode 139. Can't believe it. All right, so check us out on our website at mancavemoviereview.com and look for us on iTunes at Man Cave Movie Review. And leave us a comment and tell us if you liked the show or didn't like it. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook at Man Cave Movie Review, and you can follow us on Twitter at Man Cave Movie. And uh, if you want to give us an email, we you can find us at mancavemovie at gmail.com, I believe is our email address. I don't even know what our email is. Set it up. I know I set it up, and I just don't remember. Yeah, I'm sorry. It is Our email address is mancavemoviepodcast at gmail.com. So if you ever want to drop us a line uh, and uh, just tell us how bad this show is or uh, complain that Jeff doesn't show up enough to the, to the podcast, by all means, send it there, and I will forward it on to him. <clears throat> so uh, until next week, I am your host, Steve Michael, signing off with my very good and dear friend, Mark. Shaken, but not stirred. Slover. Well, we all know that Delta 9 nerve gas is fatal. The good thing is the Man Cave movie review is just merely (laughs) headache-inducing. Nice.
Oh, well done. All right, and also saying farewell, and I do it my view Zane, is our other good and dear friend, Ken. Get that laser away from my crotch, Roni. This movie actually taught me a very valuable lesson, and that is if you're meeting someone in like a business-type setting and you want to make an impression, what you want to do is just reach in your pocket and throw down a big bar of Nazi gold bullion on the ground. <laughs> nothing, nothing like breaks the ice better than that. Oh, nice. Well, that is the thing about it. In this movie and a lot of other movies where they sit there and say, like, well, you know, we're, we're, we're doing something with gold bullion, you know, bars of bullion. A bar of bullion like that size, it takes both hands to lift it. Even a, even a macho man has to go and, you know, put some work into it. Gold weighs a ton. Yep. Yep. Very heavy. And, man, can you imagine the divot it put in that green? I bet the groundmaster was pissed. <laughs> And also saying farewell, adieu, and he sends his regrets and regards for not being here. So our other good dear friend, Jeff, strange occupation, Muncie. Hopefully he'll be around next week. I don't know. He's been called away on matters of state. So God knows when we'll see him again. All right, folks, hope you enjoy the show. We will be back next week. Until then, ciao.